All right, now let's turn in our Bibles to the prophet Haggai. Haggai, little tiny book, only two chapters long in your Old Testaments. We have Bibles. If uh, the ushers would hand out Bibles, we have them for you. Just raise your hand. It's page 667 in the Bibles that the ushers have for you, page 667. We're making our way through the minor prophets. Haggai is prophet number 10. And after him, we have two more to go, Zechariah and Malachi, and then we'll be into the New Testament in a few more weeks. So, Lord willing, we're going to finish Haggai tonight. He's only two chapters. Um, And um, number 10 out of the 12 minor prophets. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll start into our Bible study. Lord, we just want to give you thanks. We just want to pause in the middle of this week. I thank you for those who are able to be with us tonight, those who are watching online, that we can just settle our hearts before you tonight. And in the middle of this week, just pause to give you thanks. For some of us, we've had a good week. For some, a terrible week. You know the good and the bad of it. But we just want to exalt you. We just want to put aside our own attention to ourselves and give all our attention to you, Lord. And we invite you to speak to our hearts now as we open up the Bible and as we study it together. That you would speak to us through the prophet Haggai. That even in this tiny book of the Bible that is often overlooked, you would speak to us tonight. We just invite you to draw near to us, Lord, as we study the Bible together. Speak to us, encourage us, and strengthen our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Uh, It's only two chapters, so bear with me because the introduction might be as long as the actual book study. But it's always important uh, for us to understand what is the prophet saying in light of the context of his day. And so some of Haggai may not make sense to you unless you understand the background and why he's writing as he does. So I'm going to give a bit of a lengthy introduction. Bear with me. I'll eventually get to the text. But for those of you who like to take notes, Haggai, his name in Hebrew is spelled C-H-A-G-I. That's not Chagai. That is a ha sound. The C-H in Hebrew is ha. Haggai is his name. And it is probably a shortened version of Haggai, which would translate Feast of the Lord. So his name, as it appears, just Haggai, uh, translates Feast. He is the first of three what we call post-exilic prophets. Now, that's a mouthful, and I'm going to talk about what that means in a moment. But from this point to the end of the Old Testament, Haggai, the next prophet, Zechariah, and the last one after him, Malachi, are three prophets who prophesy post the exile of the Jews. And and so this is the first post-exilic prophet, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, He prophesies during the reign of King Darius of Persia. He tells us this in chapter 1, verse 1. It tells us that it's in the second year of King Darius. So that dates his, his prophecy at 520 B.C. because we know historically when King Darius reigned and ruled in Persia, which is the ancient word uh, today for Iran. Iran was known by the name Persia up until the mid-1930s, so this is that same general region. 
And uh, the book of Haggai fits within the book of Ezra. So if you ever want to go back, I'm going to read just a a tiny little bit from the book of Ezra tonight. But if you want to go back and read the context of Haggai's prophecy, you can go back to the Old Testament book of Ezra, where Ezra mentions Haggai, and uh, you can understand the context even better. But uh, let me just explain to you the the post-exilic prophecy and, and, and how it bears in the whole understanding of the story. In the past couple of Old Testament prophets that we've been studying through the Minor Prophets, you might remember me often mentioning the, uh, the coming of the Babylonian Empire, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, and then they, they took captive Jews, took them off to Babylon, and they, the Jews spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. Now, During that time, during those 70 years, the Lord purged the Jews of idolatry and made them more dependent on Him. How many of you understand this in your own lives? When you get into a predicament, you tend to become more more dependent upon the Lord. The Jews find themselves in a predicament. The Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar has come, besieged Jerusalem, the years 586 B.C. He takes the Jews, many of them, some he leaves in the land, but many of them he takes captive. And he takes them off to ancient Babylon, which is today basically Iraq. And they will live there for 70 years in exile. The Lord prophesied all of this in advance. He even said that it would be 70 years. The Bible even says that he considered Nebuchadnezzar the rod of his discipline, the instrument that he would use, this pagan king, to purge his own people of idolatry and to bring them, the Jews, into a closer relationship with God. And when the 70 years were up by God's divine timetable, God puts it on the heart of the next king. After Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians are defeated by the Medes and the Persians. There's now a king on the throne by the name of King Cyrus, who's a Mede, and the Medes and Persians together formed the Medo-Persian Empire. King Cyrus, this pagan king, is moved by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to issue a decree to allow the Jews to go back to their homeland. Now, this is a wonderful prophetic thing. This is a great event that, you, that we need to understand because God has arranged and orchestrated all of this. In fact, you can just listen. But in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet prophesies 150 years before Cyrus, the king of Persia, is even born. 150 years before he's even born. And Isaiah names Cyrus by name. Don't let any of your skeptical friends say, you know, how can you trust the Bible? You know, it's just a bunch of fables. No. In fact, we know that Isaiah prophesied 150 years before this this Persian king was even born. And he mentions him by name. For example, Isaiah 45 and verse 20, uh, sorry, 44 and verse 28. Isaiah said, who says of Cyrus, God is speaking here. He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. And then Isaiah 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to His anointed, to Cyrus. Now listen to this. God is calling, through the prophet Isaiah, this pagan king, His anointed. So please always keep that in mind. It does not matter in the world who is on the throne. What really matters is that God is on the throne. And he will use kings and principalities and leaders of nations to accomplish his purposes. It doesn't, it doesn't matter at the end of the day uh, who we want to be leader. What matters is that God is on the throne and he's always the one who is in charge. And so this is what the Lord says to his anointed of, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. Isaiah mentions his name again in Isaiah 45 and verse 13. 
God says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, Cyrus is going to do this, but not because somebody pays him off, but because God moves in his heart. Now, you know what's interesting? We don't know this to be factually uh, true because we don't have a record of this in the Bible, but historically, the ancient uh, historian Josephus, who lived in the first century A.D., he said that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, read Isaiah to King Cyrus. Because here Daniel is still living as an exile in Babylon, and he reads, according to Josephus, he reads the passage from Isaiah to King Cyrus. He says, hey, Cy, I don't know if you know this. I'm not talking Duck Dynasty, Cy. I'm talking King Cyrus, Cy. Does anybody watch Duck Dynasty? You don't want to admit it, do you? All right, never mind. King Cyrus. Daniel goes to King Cyrus and says, Hey, Cyrus, Isaiah the prophet talked about you 150 years before you were born. And apparently, according to Josephus, Daniel reads the prophecy of Isaiah to King Cyrus and says, You, King Cyrus, are supposed to be God's instrument to let all the Jews go back to their homeland. What do you think of that? And King Cyrus' pagan king says, Wow, really? My name? was written 150 years before I was born. Let me see that. And as he's taking this to heart, the Bible says, because Ezra tells us this, that Cyrus then, in response to the Lord, lets the Jews go back to their homeland. Now, this is a magnanimous edict that he announces here. A few million Jews have been taken captive to ancient Babylon, which has now been taken by the Medo-Persian Empire. And when Cyrus gives this order that they can go back, you know how many go back? Just a little over 49,000. Out of a couple million who go to Babylon because they were taken captive there, about only 49,000 go back in the first return of the exiles to their homeland. Now, you have to bear in mind, 70 years have passed. You've been a prisoner of war, basically, for 70 years. That means also that a lot of people have been born in Babylon that, were, that had never even been to Israel. A whole generation over 70 years is going to be born in this foreign land. And now God is saying, you can go back to your homeland. There's a whole bunch of people who were Jews living in Babylon because they were born there who have no interest in going back. They've never seen the homeland. They've never lived there. They don't know anything about it. 49,000, however, will go back. And what do they go back to? They go back to a city of rubble. Because 70 years earlier, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians besieged Jerusalem, they destroyed it. And they destroyed the temple of God. They laid it waste. And thus, as you read the book of Haggai, the purpose of Haggai's prophecy is to motivate the Jews to rebuild the temple of God. They have, we'll talk in a moment, how they will suspend the rebuilding of the temple for 15 years. So here's what happens. 49,000, close to 50,000 Jews decide to make the 900-mile pilgrimage mostly over desert wasteland. They're going to go back from Babylon to their homeland. Many of them have never even been there before. This is going to be new to them for the first time for many of them. And as soon as they get back, they're going to start to rebuild the temple of God. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I just want to read a couple of verses out of the book of Ezra. This is Ezra chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. This is what it says. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, that's a name you're going to hear in 
Haggai's prophecy, Zerubbabel. And Jeshua, or Joshua, son of Jehozadak, that's another name you're going to hear. And the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites, 20 years of age and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. This is what they sang. He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. That's the whole song. And then they just sang it over and over and over again. Just kind of like what we do. It's modern worship. That's the way you go. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Okay, your attention. Here's what's happening. So King Cyrus says to the Jews who who have been captive for 70 years, you guys can go back, as many of you want to. 50,000 or so go back. First thing they do is they lay the foundation of the temple because Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it when he besieged Jerusalem. That's all they get done. They laid the foundation of the temple. you got the priests. They're all dressed up. They're, 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 they're playing their cymbals and their, and their electric guitars. And they're having a grand old time. And they're worshiping the Lord, right? Well, it says in that text I just read that some of the older Jews who are now, they've gone back. They remember the glory of the former temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. So let's say they were kids when they were uh, taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Let's say for just round numbers, they were eight years old, eight or ten years old. Now they were taken off to Babylon for 70 years. Now they've come back, they're 78 or 80 years old. And those who had seen the beautiful display of the former temple, they weep. Because they remember Solomon's temple. The first temple that Solomon built was of white marble. And the interior of the temple was made of, was inlaid with cedar wood imported from Lebanon. And then over the cedar wood, it was overlaid with pure gold and embedded with jewels. Now, as they begin to lay the foundation for the second temple, because Solomon's glorious temple had been destroyed, the older people in the crowd who remember the beautiful one, they're weeping like, oh, this isn't going to be as pretty as that first one. This is not going to be what we remember. But it says in Ezra that the younger ones who didn't know the glory of the former temple, they're just rejoicing with shouts of joy. So you have a mixture. Try to picture this worship service where half the crowd are like, eh, and the other half are, yay, eh, yay, eh, yay. I mean, there's weeping and there's shouts of joy. Kind of like with us too from time to time. But anyway, anyway, here's Here's what's going on. So the older crowd is like, we remember the good old days. And the younger crowd is, this is the new good days. We don't even know what the older days were like. And so there's this mixture of emotion going on here. Now, what happens, though, unfortunately, is when they're allowed to go back, it's the year 538 B.C. They lay the foundation of the temple. And now it's about 536 B.C. And you know what happens after that? 
They just forget. They get the whole foundation of the temple laid, and then they go about their business for the next 15 years. From about 535 to 520 B.C., the Jews now who have returned and they're living in Jerusalem have not built the house of God. They've not rebuilt what they were supposed to do. And therefore, Haggai shows up on the scene. The year now, 520 B.C. For 15 years, they have not been building the house of the Lord. And God stirs the heart of Haggai and tells him to prophesy to these people, speak to these people about rebuilding the temple of the Lord. And so the theme of the book of Haggai is, get your priorities right. If if there's one sentence that describes the book of Haggai, it's that. Get your priorities right. Now, obviously, there's a context for this. This is an ancient story. But it has a timeless message. The theme is timeless in our day. What does God want of us? He wants us to get our priorities right. What were they doing wrong? For 15 years, all they were doing after they got back to their homeland was pursuing their own careers. They were all about their own interests, their own desires, and they had neglected the priority of God. They had not made God first. They made themselves first. So now, all of that said, now you understand the context. Let's look here into the story of Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. That's the guy that we mentioned in Ezra. He is the governor, if you will, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, So these two guys were the spiritual and the civil leaders of their day. Zerubbabel is the civil leader. He's like the governor. And Joshua, this is not the same Joshua as in the story of Moses and Joshua. This is a different Joshua many centuries later. Uh, This is Joshua, who's the high priest. So you have the civil and the spiritual leader of the people of Israel. And Haggai is called by God to prophesy first to these two guys. Now, notice, if you will, that Haggai tells us the time of his reign, it's the time, uh, sorry, the time of his ministry, it's during the reign of King Darius, which is very different from the other minor prophets. You might have noticed that when we study through the other minor prophets, they referenced a king of Judah or a king of Israel. That was the time during which they prophesied. But see, there are no more kings now. When the Jews were taken captive into Babylon, the monarchy was done away with. And Israel would never have a king again after that. After the 70 years when they came back, there was no king. And there were no idols, by the way, either. God had purged them of their idolatry, but he had also stripped them of their monarchy. It was never God's will that they had uh, given their allegiance to an earthly king because God's ultimate desire was a theocracy, and he wanted to be their king. And so God strips these things away. After 70 years, they come back. There's no king, and there are no idols. And so the only way that Haggai can tell us the, the time of his Prophecy is not by referencing a king. There are no kings. He's going to have to reference a foreign king. This is during the reign of King Darius, which tells us it's 520 B.C. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 
You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So here's what he's saying up to this point. He's saying, look, you guys have been living in the land for 15 years. God's house has not been built, but you're living in your paneled houses. Now, that reference to paneled houses, when you compare what it tells us in Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, with this passage here, what it indicates to us is that the cedar that they had imported from Lebanon that was supposed to be the interior of the temple of God ended up being used in their own personal houses. So the very, the very articles that were supposed to be used to build God's house, the people decided, you know what, that would really look pretty in my living room. I think we should just, you want to use it? Yeah, let's use this in our living room. You want some? Yeah, let's just, let's just take it and we can just build our houses. We'll get to this later. And they're living in their beautiful paneled houses while God's house has not been built. Now, I just want you to know, God has a sense of humor. It's completely coincidental that the earlier announcement... And now our Bible study, all right? It's completely... I'm just going straight through the Bible, okay? Nobody send me your emails. I'm just going straight through the Bible. It's just a gut incident. It's just um, nothing that I planned, but praise God. But anyhow, but here's what he's saying. He's like, you know, you're living in such luxurious homes. And he says, my house has not been built. So here's the consequence, he says to them. He says, as a result, you're going to work really, really hard, and you're not going to have much to show for it. That's, what's, that's what he says between verses 5 and 6. He says, you plant much, but you harvest little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages, only put, the, put them in a purse with holes in it. And it, can anybody relate to that, right? You know, it just somebody once said, money talks, and, um, and, it, and it usually um, says, well, I forget the joke. But anyway... Um, <laughs> What was that joke? Money talks, but and it usually says good. But that's what it is. Money talks, and it usually says goodbye. So, wow, that was a horrible thing because you got to stay in rhythm. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Have you ever gotten to that place you just felt like, man, I'm, I'm just I'm working so hard, but I don't, I don't have anything to show for it, and it's just like I'm spinning my wheels, and I'm working so hard, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I just I don't have much to show for it, and you feel like you're 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 dumping it all down a hole. I, I remember many years ago. Shortly after uh, Terry and I were married, it was one of our first Christmases or two. I don't remember when exactly. But, uh, you know, we went and got a real Christmas tree. Those of you who put up hypocrite trees, get a real one. And so we, we went and we cut down a, a real tree and we have it in our living room. And uh, it was just this beautiful display of the evergreen, you know. And, and there we go. Uh, off, and, off and go. And so you know how, how it works. You know, you got to water that tree. You got to water it consistently because you don't want it to look like the Charlie Brown tree before Christmas even gets here. So you got to make sure it doesn't get brittle and all dried out. And I was faithfully watering that thing morning and night. And I'd get and I'd stick my little finger in, in you know, the little holder there, the little Christmas tree stand, and oh, looky there, it's dry again. Man, you're a pretty thirsty tree. And I kept pouring water in, into, the, into the holder, and, uh, but sure enough, the tree just kept getting drier and drier, and the needles were falling off, and I'm like, what in the world? I've been watering this thing consistently for like weeks now, right? Well, little did I know that at the base of the Christmas tree stand, there was a crack in it. And as I was watering it, I had been watering my living room for like three weeks. 
And I didn't realize it until I got closer to figure out, why is this tree looking so terrible? And all of a sudden, I noticed how soppy the carpet sounded like. What in the world is happening here? Oh, what a glorious Christmas that was. <laughs> Taking the whole tree out. It's all decorated and, and pulling back the carpet and having to rip out the, car, the padding and replace. It was horrible because mildew by that for three weeks. Like, you've been watering your carpet in your living room. You didn't even know it. It was terrible. It was just like, it was just like pouring water down a hole. And this is the kind of thing that Haggai is saying is just your life is going to end up feeling like you're just pouring it all down a hole and you have nothing to show for it. And God is saying, guess what? That's because you're not making me priority. When we just live our lives for our own glory and for our own desires and our own ambitions and our own purposes and our own pursuits, and we leave God out of the equation, we're going to end up feeling life Feeling like life is basically always spinning, but nothing getting done. It's the cycle of discontentment, lack of satisfaction, despite the fact you're working hard, you're striving, you're trying to do this and trying to do that. God is saying to the people here, He's saying the reason why you drink, but you're never filled. You eat, but you're never full. You earn all these wages only like it's like you're dumping them in a hole. Is because you don't make me priority. Look, this is, this is a timeless theme. When we tend to ignore God, our lives will have its share of difficulties. Now, it isn't to say that when you always prioritize your day with the Lord, everything's going to go smoothly. We know we live in a fallen world and there's no perfect day and there's no perfect life. But I don't know about you, but I can tell you the times I don't get up in the morning and give my first part of the day to the Lord, the rest of the day is crazy for me. Now, I'll have crazy days even when I give it to the Lord. But why do I want to add extra crazy days on purpose because I don't give my day to the Lord? Have you ever noticed that when you tend to just be more disciplined and give the Lord the portion of your day and just spend some time in prayer and, and uh, just looking into the Word and asking Him, you know, to just get your heart right for the day, how much, relatively speaking, your day goes better? Let me see a show of hands. How many of you relate to that? Okay. So it's this kind of principle that when we make God priority, things tend to go better. When we just uh, make ourselves priority and we don't really give God first place in our lives, things tend to be more difficult for us and we invite it upon ourselves. It's the same kind of principle in every area of life. So you give your first part of the day. Uh, I, I believe the same uh, thing true about stewardship of, of the money that he's given us. And when we give that first portion to the Lord, then God takes care of our needs. When we look to give him what's left over, there's never anything left over. And God is always faithful to honor that kind of just good faithfulness and stewardship uh, because we're making him priority. When we don't, we make our situation worse for ourselves. Look on verse 7. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Notice that he says, I called for this. Because God always wants to get our attention. 
He wants to be first in our lives. And if we don't make Him first, uh, He will arrange things in our lives until we finally recognize His rightful place of priority in our lives. So verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So in other words, they respond to the message of Haggai. You guys have been so consumed with your own business. You need to be consumed with the business of the Lord. And so the building process starts again, and what he doesn't tell us, what we end up knowing from the book of Ezra, is that they jump-started again about 520 B.C., and in about five more years, about 515 B.C., they finish the temple of the Lord. So they turn, and they do what is right, and they obey the voice of the Lord. So chapter 2, verse 1, says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. I like this encouragement here. He says, be strong to Zerubbabel. Next sentence, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is, what, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. It's very interesting because three times there, uh, the Lord encourages Zerubbabel, and then Joshua the high priest, and then all the people. God says, be strong. Be strong, be strong, be strong. More than 30 times throughout the Bible, God exhorts people to be strong. And a lot of times it is coupled with and courageous because God knows that there are some things that overwhelm us. God knows that there are times that we feel completely beside ourselves. And then he even adds there the last statement he says in verse 5, and do not fear. And that is found more than 365 times in the Bible. Somebody once said, that's one do not fear for every day of your life. More than 365 times throughout the Bible, that phrase is given to us from the Lord. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And a lot of times, the other part that is coupled with that is, for I am with you. And there will be times in your life and in my life where we need to just be reminded that the Lord is the one who makes us strong and the Lord is the one who takes away our fears, that there are some things that God calls us to do and there are some days that we have where we need to be reminded that God is our strength and He is the one that deals with our fears. Even in the New Testament, Ephesians 6.10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. And so keep reading verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will come, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. 
The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, this is a prophetic passage here and it has a dual interpretation. Last week I think I mentioned this. A lot of the Old Testament prophecies have a dual interpretation. Some of it is the near and some of it is distant. Let me tell you what the near interpretation of this part is right here. They were rebuilding the temple because it had been destroyed. And God makes a promise. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. So as people began to bring their offerings to the house of the Lord, then they had the ability to pay for and rebuild this temple that they put their own hand to. And God gives this promise that the glory will be greater in this house than it was in the former house. It may not be as spectacular as the first one that Solomon built, but this will be even more glorious because of my presence. Now that's the near interpretation. But there's a distance interpretation, and it has to do with the reference to the return of Jesus as the Messiah. And the reason we know this is because this verse here, when Haggai says in verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. That is the only verse of all of the book of Haggai that is quoted in the New Testament. And it is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, and through verse 29, and when you read the context of Hebrews 12, 26 to 29, it is a clear statement related to the second coming of Christ when He is, in fact, the desired of all nations who will come to Jerusalem. And when the Lord again comes, and we get into the book of Zechariah starting in, in two weeks after our Thanksgiving service, Zechariah prophesies specifically how Jesus will come back again to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem when he returns from the, sec for his, the second coming. And he will then establish his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And when that happens, the glory of that temple will be greater than any previous temple that ever stood there. Now presently there is no temple on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Because even this temple that they rebuild here in Haggai is destroyed in 70 A.D. by Emperor Titus when the Romans come and besiege Jerusalem. And since 70 A.D., there's been no Jewish temple on the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. The only two temples that stand there now on the Temple Mount are the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Muslim Mosque, and the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim uh, dome that commemorates what they believe was the place where Abraham nearly sacrificed Ishmael. The Bible says it was Isaac, however. Those are the only two edifices that stand presently on the Temple Mount area. Now, one of the first times I was in Israel, and uh, the, the, the pastor friend of mine who was leading the Bible study here uh, opened my eyes to something that we can't say is for sure, but man, it makes for interesting um, speculation. Here's what it is. As it relates to this distant prophecy of Jesus coming again to Jerusalem, when he says here, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, in that context of his second coming, does he really need anybody's money? So what is it possibly he's referring to? Perhaps he's referring to the fact that when you stand today at the Mount of Olives and you look at the Temple Mount of Jerusalem, the Al-Aqsa Mosque has a dome that is silver. It's tarnished now, but it's a silver dome. And the Dome of the Rock, the other Muslim uh, shrine there, is a dome that is gold. Could it be that the Lord is saying, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, and it's both going to go. They're both going to go when I establish my kingdom and when I return and establish my temple on this holy hill. 
And so it's, it's wonderful to think about what lies ahead. But the bottom line is, the Lord is coming again, and the desire of all nations will once again fill that house with glory, and it will be more spectacular than it's ever been when Jesus comes again. Well, let's finish out the chapter. So verse 10, On the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says, Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, It becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Okay, this is a little... Uh, a bit challenging here, but let me do the best to communicate what I think he's saying here. He asked the priest, if you guys have consecrated meat in the fold of your garment and you touch something else, does that consecrated holy meat that they would offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, does it make the other things that it comes in contact with holy? And the priest says, no, it doesn't do that. And then Haggai says, well, what if you have something that is considered unholy, like a dead body, and you come in contact with a dead body, does that make you unholy? He goes, yeah, now that's, that, that is the case. That does happen. And the Lord says, well, this is the case with Israel. What he's saying, in other words, is that holiness is not contagious, but impurity is. In other words, when they come back to the land of Israel, just the fact that they are in the holy land and they offer holy sacrifices does not make them holy because they've come in contact with holy things. Holiness does not happen because of habits. Holy habits produce holy hearts. No, no. Holy hearts are produced by a relationship with the holy God. Holiness is not just something that happens because we are, you know, it's contagious. We brush in contact with something or someone that is themselves spiritually righteous or holy. No, no, no. What makes us holy is that relationship that we have with the Lord through Jesus Christ. It is obedience to Him. It is that relationship with Him that makes us holy. Otherwise, we can be around holy things or, you know, offer holy sacrifices as they were in this days, and that does not make you holy. Verse 15, he says, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were only twenty. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Do you hear that? He's saying, I was behind some of this, the lack in your life. He says, I was behind this so that you would turn to me, but you didn't. Verse 18, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. So God says, because now you've gotten your priorities right, you've built my house, you're obeying me, You're putting me first. He says, now I will bless you. And then he says, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall. 
each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now just circle Zerubbabel's name there in the margin of your Bible, and here's what you might want to just make note of. Zerubbabel is a name that is found in the genealogical record of Jesus Christ. When you look at the genealogical record in Luke chapter 3, which is Mary's genealogical record, and you look at the genealogical record of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, which is Joseph's, you're going to see Zerubbabel mentioned in both genealogical records. In other words, Zerubbabel is the last person to contain within his veins both the bloodline of Mary and the bloodline of Joseph that would eventually lead to Messiah Jesus. And so God is concluding this by saying, Zerubbabel, you're the signet ring because there's royalty that courses through your veins. And that royalty is the ultimate promise of the Savior, King Jesus, who will eventually come, die for the sins of the world, that we might be free from sin and death and have the hope of heaven in our hearts because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But look, this major theme from Haggai, make him first in your life. Make the Lord always priority. Amen? Let the Lord bless you because of your obedience to Him. Make Him first. If we put Him first, He will order our steps. If we glorify Him first, He will take care of all of our needs. If we give Him the first portion of our day, He will go before us concerning the rest of it. Making God first is always glorifying to Him, and it means for us a greater day and greater advantage. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. And even through the ancient prophets like Haggai, we take to heart these kind of themes that never grow old. May you be first in our lives, Lord. May you be first in our homes, first in our marriages, first as we give you the first part of our day, first with our finances, first in business, first in relationships, first with everything, Lord. That as we prioritize you, then, Lord, we know that you will order our steps and we gain favor in your eyes, not because it's, it's works-oriented, but just because you desire to bless your children. And when we're disobedient to you and when we don't make you first, then we invite our own difficulties. But when we order you as priority in our lives, then we can watch your gracious hand and how you'll take care of us and provide for us and how you will orchestrate our day and how you'll take care of our future by putting you first, Lord, by acknowledging you as priority. We thank you for the word of the Lord through the prophet Haggai, Lord. And we ask you to bless it to us as we hear it and as we obey it. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen and amen.